Welcome to Amnesty International's comedy podcast series. This year, Amnesty's had exclusive backstage access at two of the biggest events on the comedy calendar, the 2014 Edinburgh Festival Fringe and the Ballam Comedy Festival in London. We'll be bringing you a series of interviews with some of the greatest stand-up comedians working today, and along with finding out about the business of laughter, we'll be chatting about life, politics and human rights. Tonight, in a noisy Edinburgh bar, we catch up with comedian, writer and actress Tiffany Stevenson. She'll reveal why she recently headbutted an audience member, how her agent tried to talk her out of appearing in The Office, and why she disagrees with Russell Brand's views on voter apathy. Tiffany Stevenson, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to Amnesty International backstage at the Edinburgh Fringe. You're welcome. Uh, here at the exclusive Loft Bar. Yeah, I mean, we say it's exclusive, but <laughs> I'm beginning to think they let pretty much anyone in. So you've just come off stage at the, the Gilded Balloon. Yes. Uh, with your latest show, Optimist. Yep. How did it go? Uh, it went well, actually. Tuesday night, so the audience are always a little bit quieter on a Tuesday night. But there's some slightly more theatrical bits in the show, so I don't mind that, you know. Um, I've come to learn that you know you need to let the audience be whatever audience they want to be. So some nights you'll get rowdy, rowdy crowds. Uh, some nights you'll get raucous laughter. Some nights you'll get quite a theatrical audience and pin drop silence if you're doing heartfelt stuff. You know, so so I, I quite enjoy the theatre of it. I, I enjoy that sort of roller coaster between between big laughs and being able to do poignant yeah. stuff as well. But I thought you stormed it. So Thank well you. done. I well, very thanks. much enjoyed it. I was in there as well. Um, so for those who haven't seen it though, uh, could you tell us a little bit about it? Um, it's about trying to find my inner optimist after feeling like uh, I lost it at some point in my 20s. Because I think as a teenager I was, I was sort of a bit of a feminist and a socialist and angry about a lot of stuff and had a lot of feelings. <laughs> and, um, but I, I think I thought then I was hopeful that I, I was going to be a big deal and I was going to make a difference in the world and then as I got older, that kind of got crushed and lost somewhere. Mm. So it's about trying to find my way back to it. I mean, it's sort of framed by um, by the fact that I had an operation last year and I had a bit of a rough 2013. So it gave me a lot of sort of thinking time, probably too much time in my head mm. to kind of mull over stuff. And uh, yeah, I had an operation on my tongue, which is a bit of a weird thing because I, ref I refer to it as a work-related injury yes. <laughs> because as a as a comic I speak I use my tongue you know and uh, obviously uh, without you know any problems in that area is a quite a big deal for me so so it's quite a traumatic quite a traumatic year um, well, it must have been yeah I can imagine yeah, yeah. so so it's kind of I, I've had this is I was at the fringe in 2012 and I did quite a sort of I guess feminist show then about aging and and women getting all over their faces and attacking them with plastic surgery mm. and and uh, and then 2013, I took a year off because I just had this kind of not great year. And so now I'm back and I feel like I really have something to say again, which I think is important mm. that um, you don't just fire off a show every year just for the sake of doing yeah. one. I, I feel like I have to have something to say. And, and I did this year. And just as you said, you were back then, fireworks piped up yes, in the distance. Yeah. As if they were welcoming you back Welcome to Edinburgh. Welcome back to the fringe, yeah. <laughs> um, That's so the tattoo, I think. Yeah, I think it is, yeah. isn't it? They're probably a big cannon in a while yeah. as well. Um, so will you be touring with The Optimist, or is it done and dusted after Edinburgh? Oh, no, I've got tour. I've got some tour dates. In fact, can you still hear me over the sound of that? 
Okay, wow. We've got this, good should announce each one. <laughs> Maidenhead, Croydon, Wimbledon, Salford, Sheffield, Cambridge. Um, where else? Oh, they've stopped now. Uh, Cambridge. Uh, I should have a flyer. It's got it all on. Um, Shoreham. Shoreham by Sea. That's an essential tour date for anyone's diary. Um, yeah, I've got a few. There's about sort of 20 of them. Mm. So mainly sort of October, November, and then a few next year as well. So you keep it busy. I'm yeah. amazed that we can be heard over these fireworks, but we're, we're living with it, and the producer's happy. Yeah. So, uh, so the festival's coming to a close. Yes. Unfortunately. Uh, were there any highlights for you and have there been any strange occurrences? Yeah, I think so you've seen the end of my show, so you know that there's a there's some dancing at the end of my show. And um, there's a guy in the audience who I that's is that not got crazy? No, it's still fine. Okay, we're gonna carry on. She is uh, an expert sound mixer, so um, don't you worry. So there's a there's a point in the show where I flirt with someone. And uh, and at the end, I kind of do a bit of the Kate Bush dance at them. And uh, I on the what, on the first couple of days, I just accidentally headbutted someone in the front row, <laughs> and he just went fucking hell. I might have to bleep that. Uh, and I was like, well, I'm really sorry that not, I'm not supposed to do that. And he went, I'm fine. I've got a hard head. So you alright? And I was like, sure. And then I made a joke. I came back on and went, I did just headbutt that guy in the front row. <laughs> And I, Doogie, I think his name was, and I said, uh, I don't know what I was thinking, I'm in Edinburgh, not Glasgow. And everyone went, ooh, and I went, yeah, local rivalry. So that was good. That happened in the first week. I thought I was going to sort of, we, we had to sort of check me for concussion and get medical oh, people to come in. And I carried on dancing and did the end of the show because I'm a pro. I'm a I was pro people. Say, I, saw, I saw the dance today and you don't, you know, you put your full weight into it, you know, the, yeah, all the moves. I do, I do. But I've now learned to hold back slightly <laughs> after my first week headbutting incident. So, yeah. Brilliant. It's uh, all in the name of comedy. Yeah. Uh, so if I could take you back to the start of your career, uh, you kind of did things the other way around than normal. Yeah. Um, starting in acting and then becoming a comedian. Yeah. Uh, what brought on the change? Um, I think that as an actress, I was getting slightly frustrated about the lack of good stuff out there for women and uh, and the quality of a lot of the TV. I mean, TV has improved massively over the last 10 years, mm. even uh, with the advent of like sort of HBO series and stuff like that. But uh, especially TV in the UK, which, you know, I was just being put up for stuff like Hollyoaks and going. I don't really want to be, I don't want to shout in a northern accent. That's not really <laughs> what I call acting. Um, so I guess over uh, over time I started to get slightly frustrated and I thought, do you know what, I'm I started working with a street theatre company and we would like improv a lot of stuff. And a few of the girls are doing stand-up and I thought, I'm going to write some stand-up. So I started doing a character and then after about six months I sort of dropped the character and then just became myself. And I just, I felt like I was funny and I felt like I wanted people to hear my voice mm. and it was a voice that wasn't that prevalent out there and we need more female voices and especially more female working class voices as well. Yeah. You know, because there's a lot of middle class voices, um, you know, and that's great and it's fine and it's valid, but mm. white male middle class privileged voice isn't the only voice that exists, yeah. even if TV and radio sometimes leads you to think that that's yeah. where it is. So I think, um, so when I first started, there were definitely way, like now there's been an influx of more girls coming through and I think it's great. It means that they're encouraged that it's something you can do as a career. So if they see you on the TV, they go, oh, that's a thing that I could do. Yeah. And yeah. they realize that it's a, you know, 
there's yeah. a possibility. But I think we'll come back to that later, the uh, you know, females in comedy. Talking of your acting, you were in what many people consider one of the greatest sitcoms ever. In the tiniest, smallest way, yes. But I still was. in it, that's like a gold card, really, isn't it? You know, it's a golden ticket in, yeah, uh, it does. in comedy, I mean, being in the office. Being in the yeah. office was great because you get residuals, yeah. which, which is amazing. <laughs> so we had no idea when we did it that it would make... I remember at the time my agent went, oh, no, you don't want to do the t- a tiny part like that. That was my old <laughs> agent. She was incredibly posh. Uh, a woman called Dradit Malone. She is now retired. She used to speak like this. Tiffany, the thing is, if you just take small roles, they only ever offer you small roles. And I said, but the script's really funny and I want to do it. Well, I, I don't understand, you know. Um, you know, I think that uh, it's pointless, you know. It's a waste of everyone's time. And I went, no, I'm doing it. And I did it. And it kind of made me more money than any other acting job I've really? ever done. So, so my decision was right. And sometimes you've got to trust your own So did you realise at the time how significant... Uh, I didn't know how big it was going to be, but I knew that the script was really funny and I thought it would be this underground cult thing and I wanted to be a part of it. And I guess it's because I, originally I think I auditioned for one of the series roles and I didn't get it, and they just mm. went, will you come back and do this episode? You know, uh, and it was a small part. I mean, it was a bit more when we shot it. I had a couple of other scenes with other people, but what ends up being in it is, is actually quite small. But, you know, it's great because I'm part of that history mm. of amazing British comedy, and that's, you know, and it's, a great thing. If I'm right, this is me being nerdy, but this is series one, episode five? Yeah, it is the same episode <laughs> of Robin Ince. Yes, of course. Yes. Yeah, so there's a couple of comics in that episode. Uh, yeah, I mean, I basically snog, snog Finchie in Chaser's Nightclub. <laughs> like, of all the stuff that I've done, you know, I've won awards for my stand-up and I've had five-star reviews and people go, The Office, and then I was in a Dizzy Rascal video and people go, Oh, my God, you're in a Dizzy Rascal. And I'm like, I, I, I blood, sweat and tears over this hour. See, I, I wanted to talk to you about the Dizzy Rascal thing as well, but the producer said she's not going to want to talk about Dizzy Rascal. But you were in the Dizzy Rascal video. I saw it. I, yeah. see, I saw it at the time and I rewatched it today. And you are, are, you not, are you actually singing on it? Or are you? Uh, no, I'm, I'm lip syncing, but I can sing. I but say, I think it's the original vocal from the original song. Yeah, because so, you yeah. were lip syncing very well. I was going, is that her voice? Yes. Money talks. <laughs> That's it. Money talks. Dirty cash, I want you. Dirty cash, I need you. All. <laughs> yeah. You've got the producer bopping her head in the yeah, background. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a very strange video. I recommend I recommend it to anyone on YouTube. Well, just for young people, like people, like weird people that you, you expect don't like Dizzy Rascal. I remember Sam Simmons saying it to me once, going, oh, I love that song! <laughs> Couldn't believe it. Or the, like, younger, younger comics, they seem to think that's super cool. So you began your comedy career in 2005. Yep. Can you remember your first gig and approaching that microphone for the first time? Yes, I do remember. I was doing a character called Savannah Dior, Media Whore. And it was someone it was someone who just slept with famous people and was selling her story. And I say this fully aware that Nancy Del Olio has just arrived to do a show, which is basically <laughs> the same thing. If there was a gig where I could do 10 minutes to rant about why I think she shouldn't be at this festival, I would happily get up and do that. Why are you here? It says on her poster that she's a pioneering wag. What does that even mean? So wives and girlfriends in space? What do you mean pioneer? I have got no idea. It, anyway, so that was the character. It was a wag. And it was at a bar called The Glass Bar in Euston, which is a lesbian bar. But uh, So I did five minutes, and I was really nervous, but it went really well, and then obviously I just got bitten by the bug. That was 2005. And then, yeah, exactly, that marks the beginning. <laughs> and then uh, I sort of stopped doing it, and then I started again in 2006 just doing straight stand-up. Yeah. 
Well, that's quite a memorable gig. I was surprised to learn that yes. at the age of 14 you appeared on Kilroy. I did appear on Kilroy. And, I mean, if you'd have seen what I looked like, I had, like, a crispy perm, <laughs> and it was sprayed up out the side, like one, and a quiff in it, because it was the 90s. And uh, I wanted to go on and, t- and, and debate about education, um, and it was quite frustrating because the way they set it is they have people in the audience who they're definitely going to speak to. And then I think I was one of the fillers, but I got to speak. But then uh, they kind of just gave all the airtime to this, this Etonian boy who, um, who just kind of sort of railroaded the programme. I don't remember much else about it apart from kind of going that education should be free for all, isn't it? And, and that's always been a thing that I've been pretty strong on. I, I think it should be meritocratic. I think it should be on ability and... Mm. And we should all have the access. It should be on, you know, talent. But unfortunately, it doesn't work that way. And, you know, uh, I remember being quite frustrated by the opportunities afforded. I mean, I talk about this in the show, but I, my comprehensive was just down the road from Harrow School. So uh, I remember thinking of them as being very privileged mm. and it being quite unfair. Mm. Did you get the, the round of applause after you said your bit? Uh, I can't remember, to be honest. I'd be lying <laughs> if I said I could. Uh, I do remember that I had platform Dr. Martins on and they've just come back into fashion. That's how I know we're truly back in the 90s. Because platform... Are you wearing them now? Yes, yeah, yeah. Platform Dr. Martins. in the room. Yeah, so... Now, some comedians have told us they consider quite carefully what they wear on stage. And you, you talk a bit about how women uh, in, in the media are uh, often the first thing they get spoken about is fashion and what they're wearing, sort of needlessly. Yeah. You know. um, how much thought do you put into your outfits and do you ever worry about being judged on how you um, dress? No, I've always worn what I want to wear on stage. I mean, tonight I'm wearing shorts, right? Shorts and tights and a T-shirt with sequins on it. But I've always worn what I want to wear. If it's a hot day and I've got a skirt on and a top, then I'll wear it on Mm. stage. I've never, I mean, recently someone went, God, all the comedians now, they all wear dresses. When did that happen? I was like, well, I've always worn what I want. Um, Mm. And uh, the more you grow in stand-up, the more confident you become, the less it's, the less important it is. I mean, I I, I sort of state in the show that I'm not anti-fashion. Here's the thing, I like a bit of frivolity, but I guess the point I'm making in the show is that frivolity should never be in front of what the real issue is or the serious thing that's being discussed. Mm. It's a side thing, but we've got to a point now where we've reached this kind of critical point where it's being pushed as the most important thing in front of everything else. And I think I talk about Kate Blanchett at the Oscars kind of going they're asking the men about the roles that they've played and how they feel that people are relating to them in the current climate and and the women are getting who are you wearing who are you wearing who are you wearing and then i i kind of compare it to that my scene Mm. that scene in my cousin Vinny with the what pants should i wear deer hunting i wanted to say that was an excellent it's a little (laughs) known well a lot of people know the film but the accent you did for the woman in my cousin Vinny was spot on marissa (laughs) tomei she's great she's she won an oscar for that part actually there we go i should mention that but yes that was an excellent point you make about you know it doesn't really matter and you know who would you wouldn't ask the men that so yeah but i love fashion i do love fashion and i i take an interest in it and i think it's possible to do that Mm. uh but at the same time not think it's the most important thing in the world you know Mm. so i do engage with it uh i definitely do i mean if i want to spend money on things i spend money on shoes and handbags because they don't judge you (laughs) because if you lose weight or or put on weight you can still use the shoes and handbags so that's what I um I think I was talking to Sarah Pascoe about this the other day 
and she was kind of going I dress exactly the same as I did when I was 12 years old my tastes are the same you know she had a dress with robots on it and some <laughs> glittery shoes and we're like but now we just have the money to get the things that we want you know and our makeup bags you know if you're if you're 12 or 13 year old self had seen the kind of makeup you have now you'd be so excited you'd be like look all this cool stuff I've got so you know um, I d I'm, I'm not separate to that aspect but mm. I'm I think it's important to remember that it has its place yeah I read today that there has been a 62% increase in female comedians at the fringe this year compared to last. Uh, why do you think this is and would you also say this isn't really reflected in television? I would agree that it's not reflected in TV, definitely. I would say there was quite a lot of women that didn't do the fringe. Last I didn't do the fringe. There's mm. quite a lot of women that used last year as their year off. Yeah. So I think some of those women are back. That's partly responsible for the rise. Um, there's a slightly frustrating thing, I guess, with this kind of agenda that the press had last year that feminism was somehow discovered at the fringe in 2013 right. or existed for the first time at the fringe in 2013 which I find incredibly frustrating. I mean, it's always been there, as long as women have been doing stand-up comedy and there are male feminists mm. as well, you know. But it's always been there, and you're kind of discounting people like Joe Brand, yeah. who did amazing things, or going back even further, you know, Phyllis Diller and Joan Rivers and, and people like this who were kind of kicking down those doors and talking about, about stuff like that for a long, long time. So I, I guess it's kind of... I found that a little bit frustrating. And even this year, you know, I, I'm not reading my reviews because um, I just think that's healthy. But um, I've seen a couple of sort of pieces before I came up to the Fringe and they're from male journalists debating on which com female comic is the best feminist. And I was right. like, you're trying to pitch us against each other and that's not what it's mm. about. It's great that it's at the front of everyone's, what people are thinking and talking about. Um, I did the Everyday Sexism Gala, I think that was in 2012, the end of 2012, and I headlined that and that felt like it was the start of a big movement in how people think about the way they respond to women and talk about women. Yeah. And I think the Everyday Sexism Project is great. My only worry is, uh, again, it's about the frivolity thing. Not that I think that anything that happens on there is frivolous, but quite a lot of the time we're talking about small things because it's every day. Yeah. So I think it's important that we don't think we're dealing with a thing by dealing with the everyday things yeah. because that we're not looking at the, the rise of misogyny behind closed doors. Mm. That is really kind of stopping women getting to positions of power within yeah. uh, not just the comedy industry, in all industries. So by dealing with uh, men shouting out of cars and dealing with stuff on Twitter and, um, you know, see, the, here's the weird thing, that kind of low-level stuff I'm so used to dealing with and I can, if someone says something to me, I'll just slam them. Yeah. And if they try and touch, you know, touch my ass, I'm going to break their fingers. That's what's going to happen. Yeah. So I can kind of deal with that. So what I think we should be looking at, so while it's great that we deal with all of this, with all of this uh, and the chauvinism but I think we do need to look at what's happening in the layers of powers behind mm. behind that so I think it's great that there's been a rise and I, I think people are probably partly inspired by Bridget's win last year mm. um, I think more women are becoming visible on TV there's still not enough there's nowhere near enough um, and there's a backlog of amazing women waiting yeah. to come through who we didn't get the shots on the TV shows when all the boys who started like three years after us yeah. and there's like 20 of them and they're getting through and you, you still weren't getting the women through. Yeah. So, yeah. 
And then this kind of misconception. And I saw someone on Twitter uh, not long ago, it might have been Simon Evans or someone kind of going, women get pushed onto panel shows and then they're shit. And then someone else went, name names, and he mm. didn't. And uh, I, I was kind of angered by that. I was like, I've seen plenty of male comics on panel shows be shit. Yeah. Loads. Like, it's just a numbers game. So yeah. the more we start, and we need to get beyond one. Yeah. We need to start because women react with each and respond to each other in different ways than men do. Mm. So when I've done panel shows with women, like I did uh, Nevermind the Buzzcocks, and bearing in mind I didn't do it with a different female comic, and that's a different argument as well because female comics have long been ignored on shows in favour of someone like Jamelia yeah. <laughs> or Claudia Winkleman, you know, and I don't necessarily think that they represent female comedy you know yeah, Jamelia exactly. represents music and Claudia Winkleman represents fringes so uh, <laughs> no but you, but you, you understand what I mean yes, you know, I know that's I know. nothing against either of them I'm just saying that if they're the female voice on the show then there needs to be a female comic as well yeah, exactly, so yeah. have me or have Roisin Connolly or Sarah Pascoe or Bridget Christie or yeah. any of these people you know alongside them on a show or Ashling B or Catherine Wright there's loads there's so many brilliant women and more ones still to come through you know yeah. so I think the dynamic of two women on those shows is very different yeah I did Buzzcocks with Scylla and Holly Willoughby oh, Scylla and we yeah. had yeah Scylla was amazing <laughs> so we had different kind of interaction and banter and chat than the male comics did with each other and then we had the that dynamic between the women and the men as well so yeah. I just think the more variety the better because it makes it much more interesting why have this sort of hegemonical kind of idea of four or five of the same voices like who cares mm. mix it up you know yes. like if you're female step up if you're black step up if you know you're differently abled step up you know just not the average white male experience yeah. which I think is it, you know and I had this I had these thoughts at 14 I was angry about stuff like this and uh and, and I kind of brushed it off going, oh, well, that's not the reality. I mean, the first time I heard it, there was an advert on the radio and it was for like Capital Radio or something. And they were advertising, radio advertising, which is a bit meta. But they were saying on the advert, they were like, you should advertise on radio because you save some money. Yeah. Uh, you'll save some money and it's more effective than TV advertising. And with that money, you can buy like a bigger car, uh, you know, get a nicer house and a better looking secretary. And that was the first time at 14 that I had a feminist moment of going, oh, that advert's aimed at men. They just assume men are the ones in power uh, who make all the decisions. That can't be right. I mean, that's not right, guys, is it? That's not right. That's not right. That's not right. And then gradually over time going, oh, okay, that's... That is the status quo. So always about challenging it. Yeah. Um, so it's positive. Look, there's more women. That's a positive thing. Uh, and there should be more until we get to a point where it's no longer tokenism. But I think it needs to go through that phase before we can get to any kind of yeah. equality. I think we need to positively discriminate. I Otherwise, agree. it just stays the same forever. Mm. As Amnesty International, we stand up for freedom of expression. But is there anything you wouldn't joke about? I don't know, you've seen my show tonight, so I think you know that there probably isn't. It covers isn't. a lot of bases. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a there was a thing that went round on Twitter recently going, uh, retweet if you think no rape jokes except at the expense of, of the rapist. Uh, which I don't, there aren't, I don't think I've ever seen any rape jokes that go, they're hilarious. Uh, mm. But I would stand up for the freedom of expression or the right for someone to make it because you don't know from what point of view or perspective that's coming from, you know? It could be coming from a woman who's been through that experience yeah. and wants to make jokes about it. I make jokes about suicide in my show, 
from the point of personal experience and people might not be comfortable with them but I'm going to do that I talk about abortion you know from the point of personal experience so I don't think there should be anything that's taboo because if we start to crush freedom of speech then where are we you know mm. we're in China you know like I, I, I spent a few months out there in 2010 uh, performing at the expo right. and it was a real eye opener for me because um, I, I was coming to the fringe after and I was like wow I can go up to the fringe I can say whatever I want I have this total freedom of expression and freedom of speech and and in China they've got you know the great firewall which is on the uh, mm. on the internet and they can't use Twitter because in 140 characters you can criticize the Chinese government um, and people there are so oppressed that they don't even know they're being oppressed anymore and that's petrifying you know um, there was sort of there were government rules saying that, that they had to go and attend the expo yeah. Like yeah. you had to go. It was you didn't get any choice, so you had to go and enjoy yourself, <laughs> and that was. Mm. And then I realised afterwards. I obviously didn't realise at the time when I took the job, but they'd uh, where they were holding the expo in um, in Shanghai, they'd literally destroyed homes yeah. and got people who couldn't read or write to sign pieces of paper to say their homes were going to be destroyed and build this world expo there. So sometimes you just don't know until you dig down what the layers of stuff are so having had that experience in 2010 I would say there's nothing that can't be joked about but be sensitive and and my rule would be try and punch up that's what I try and do I'm gonna make jokes about the Queen and the Kardashians because I think they can take them yeah but I'm not gonna do it about the the poorest people in society or the most oppressed or you know and that, that's my personal rule. That's not everyone's, but I, I believe if we start putting limits in place, then, then we're mm. on very dangerous ground, especially with the... Um, there were those two satirical accounts on Twitter, one for the Job Centre Plus. Right. And wasn't there a David Cameron uh, uh, spoof account or some conservative spoof account? And they got shut down because the government went, this isn't satire. And when the government are making the decisions on what satire is or isn't, I get a little bit panicked and start thinking of mm. uh, 1984 <laughs> and thinking we're in an yeah. Orwellian nightmare. It becomes dangerous ground. I agree. Uh, and sort of the flip side of that question, or related to it anyway, uh, are there any stories or jokes you wish you hadn't told? Oh, wow. Um, only ones that really are at the expense of me. I had a story in my show in 2012 about how I shit myself on a water slide. And everyone always <laughs> manages to bring that up whenever I see them. Um, but yeah, I mean, I try to, where possible, really consider what I'm saying on stage and why I'm saying it. Because I think when you start in comedy, your main objective is to make people laugh. But I've always wanted to do more than that. I want to, sometimes comedy is about shocking and provoking. And, uh, you know, uh, so making people think, you know. Uh, there's a great George Carlin quote uh, that I saw on a late night cable show. And the interviewer said to him, you're considered a shock comic. Um, does that does that upset you? And he was like, "Why would that upset me? Shock is just another form of surprise, which all comedy mm. is based on." So I guess when I'm getting it right, I'm like George Carlin. You know, I'll be social, political, and personal, and I'll straddle those three things, and that's when I feel like I'm doing my best work. Yeah. And I was, kind of, I was going to ask you, actually, an additional question. Um, you, you do deal with activism quite a bit in your show. Yeah. Uh, at what point did it become important for you not just to make the audience laugh, but to think as well? Um, I think that's been there for a couple of years. Probably 2010, I did a show called Dictators, and 
and it was kind of about the things that rule our lives. So the dictators were Hitler, Mugabe, OK Magazine, Gaddafi and my mum. And I think that was the first point where I tried to sort of combine the idea of doing personal stuff with stuff that's political mm. and then I guess like the magazine's like social. So um, I've always wanted to make people think, probably within the first couple of years, you know, and it takes time to get the blend of being able to do that right and and it should never be preachy I think I always like to compare it to the, the Kinnison versus Bill Hicks because Kinnison started off as a lay preacher who then went don't take me seriously I'm a comic and Hicks went the other way he started off as a comic who went take me seriously so I it should never be take me seriously in front of the funny like yeah. I want the funny to be at the front I want them to be laughing because Listen, if I have to state what the purpose is of what I'm doing, I've sort of failed. Yeah. So if I come out of the top and go, hey, guys, I think we should all think about the NHS. And by the way, I'm a feminist. And by the way, I'm a socialist. And then do the show. Then I've kind mm. of failed. I think you should get it throughout the show, the themes that come up that yeah. will explain to you what my worldview is. And, and the bit at the end of the show, I guess, is about being more little bit more of an activist and yeah. a little bit more of standing up for what I believe in and yeah. trying to take steps towards affecting change you know even if it is just a hashtag on the internet which people mock but what I want to do is kind of build a wall of uh, noise with those yeah. take those hashtags print them off and actually put them on a wall so yeah. people can see because I think I read a Chomsky quote the other day he was saying you know when when things are privatized the first thing they do is make it seem like the system isn't working and talk more about how people are complaining and why it's wrong and then gradually you can go we'll make it better if we do this and we do this and that's how privatization happens yeah. in small little it's not a big it's not a big obvious thing it's like little pigeon steps so i think with the reverse if we could just build a wall of sound of how great the nhs is then yeah. we can do the reverse just inch by inch tweet by tweet you yeah. know um, and create something that that I think people might actually mm. look at or listen to. And as you say in your show, you have a platform and you've got a voice, so why not use it? Yeah, mm. exactly. And the Conservatives, you talk about them in your show with yes. regards to the NHS. Yeah, I do. Uh, recently they've said they may scrap the Human Rights Act after the next election. Uh, we, we touched a bit on freedom of expression, but what do human rights mean to you? Well human rights should mean something to all of us shouldn't they um, and this is what yeah this is why I think we have to stand up and have our have our voices heard and I think Mark Thomas is someone who's amazing at mm. doing this he's got his uh, 100 acts of uh, minor dissidents yes, or whatever it, you yeah. know um, and uh, tied in with human rights are freedom of expression freedom of religious beliefs or lack of religious religious beliefs whatever those are uh, not being persecuted for being a female for being a woman it's really important to keep fighting for those rights for basic human rights and we haven't even got it all solved here in the developed countries so it's really important that we speak up about that and what's happening around the world in third world countries where um, you know people are dying and being bombed and sleeping in tents and mm. refugees and there's a lot to be angry about and a, and a lot worth fighting for so so yeah I'm, I'm I've, I've always been sort of anti-conservative weirdly my dad's always voted conservative my mum's always voted Labour yeah um, but I think it's an interesting time because I think a lot of people have lost faith in any kind of politics or politicians um, and it's hard to get enthusiastic when your choices aren't brilliant in front mm. of you mm. but I do think it's you know I, I went and voted in the European elections I think it's really important that people understand that they need to vote and be engaged with it and yeah. 
I don't agree with Russell Brand that we should just promote some kind of form of apathy because mm. that's not even the same as revolution or pushing for change. That's just saying, don't bother, check out. Well, your final question, Tiffany, yep. and I shall let you get to a nice margarita, I've I believe, it's waiting yeah, for you. I've got my name on it. Uh, yeah. so what's next for you? What's next? Finish on Saturday here, I think. I've got like five more, four more shows left now, uh, and I'm feeling quite tired. So I would quite like to go on holiday, but I'm going straight to do the Leeds and Reading festivals, which are great. I did them last year. Tent full of 4,000 people, slightly alty, young, great crowds. So I'm doing that. And then the tour in October, November, a couple of TV things, a pilot that I've written, so I'm waiting to see what's oh, happening wow. with that. And a play, uh, a play, a pro-choice play that I've written. Wow, you which, are keeping uh, busy. Yeah, yeah, which I'm hoping to... We're sort of toying with bringing it to the fringe this year, but... If I get it right, this sounds very grandiose, but I want it to kind of be like James Joyce, you know, have different levels of consciousness mm. running through it and stuff. So it's quite difficult to nail. And it is a com it's not a comedy play, it's more of a drama thriller, but uh, it has comedic moments. So I'm really, I'm not saying I'm in any way nailing that, but that's what yeah. I'm trying to do. So, so yeah, so lots of stuff. And, uh, and hopefully, um, I mean, I'd, I went to Australia this year and, and the States to do some shows out there. So I'm... I'm hoping to do that again at the end of the year, if not beginning of next. So busy, busy, busy. Yeah. Well, Tiffany, thank you so much for joining us. I hope we get to see that play next year at the Fringe. Yes, yeah, and I think I think if there's anyone that should see it, it should be you guys. I think that you would <laughs> find some of the themes interesting, so yeah. And I want to thank you for putting up with probably the noisiest interview we've had. We've had fireworks, cannonballs, and now we've got helicopters above yeah. us. So. It's just what happens, guys. I'm really popular and someone's got to keep uh, the fans away. So. Well, thanks very much and hopefully we'll see you next year. Yeah, thanks very much. Cheers. If you're interested in learning more about human rights or joining Amnesty International, then please go to our website, amnesty.org.uk. And make sure you don't miss our next episode. Here's a sneak peek. I've never ever seen English people so proud to be English because you get that beaten out of you pretty young over here. Um, it's very rude to be proud of yourself.